Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that are the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews was writing, remember, to Jewish Christians who faced what seemed like an overwhelming temptation and test to return to Judaism. Remember, the context and the audience. It's a group of people who because of trial, temptation, difficulty, they thought that their best bet would be in the old world, in the old religion, in the, in the ritual, and in the observations. Some believe that the only way to quench the fierce persecution by authorities was to return to the worship practices that were acceptable to the broader culture. And in the broader culture, they thought, look, if you will just simply go along, if you won't be so exclusive, if you'll cease trying to proselytize people, if you'll stop talking about sin, if you'll stop talking about Jesus, maybe we'll let you live. The writer of Hebrews has encouraged the reader to persevere, to hold on, to stand fast. To remain faithful to God, to remain faithful to his promises, to remain faithful to the Messiah. And so the Lord Jesus reveals God in a, in a new, in a, in a complete way. And remember what the writer of Hebrews has been telling us. Jesus is superior to everything that preceded him. Jesus is better than Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is, is superior to Moses. Jesus is better in his revelation. What God spoke in the past, God has given a more complete revelation in Jesus. Remember how the book began. That God spoke in times past through the prophets, but he's spoken to us in his own dear son. Jesus is superior to everything that preceded him. Jesus is better than Moses, better than the angels, better than the priests. Jesus is the high priest of a new covenant, chapter 8. He's superior to the tabernacle in the wilderness, chapter 9. He's superior to the temple. Jesus is a, is a superior sacrifice in chapter 9, verse 13, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18. And so the Christian is called to persevere, remain faithful, 
and cultivate discipline. In chapter 12, the author compares the godly life to a great race. And then he gives reasons behind God's discipline. He warns against unbelief. He challenges the reader to live in peace with everyone in verse 14 of chapter 12. To live a clean and holy life in in chapter 12 verse 14. To watch out that no bitter root of unbelief will well up inside of you in verse 15. He cites Esau as a tragic example of someone who was willing to abandon everything that God had promised, his birthright, because he was immoral and godless and he was willing to throw away what had been tenderly made and and given to him. So the writer then cites two mountains, Sinai and Zion. One, the place where Moses received the law. The other, the place where Jesus appears and imparts grace in verse 24. And this is why he's so willing to shake us up a little bit and warn us about the dangers of unbelief. So in these closing verses of chapter 12, the writer warns the Jewish believer, God is about to shake things up. Does that sound like a timely message? God is about to shake things up. Judaism was a source of stability and comfort. But remember when this book was written and what was right on the very edge of the not too distant future. The temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Over a million Jews are going to be killed. The sacrifices are going to cease and And who can blame people for wanting stability, for security and comfort? Just note the panic in our own culture as the stock market plummets and people begin to shake and shiver and moan. But the reality is that the shaking, that that shaking is just a temporal shaking. The Bible speaks of the fact that there are going to be There's going to be a shaking that is going to be so profound, so fundamental, so pervasive that social, political, cultural things that you used to know is going to disappear. God was going to build a new temple. The material realities in which they were living was going to give way to the spiritual realities of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the old temple is going to be removed. But guess what? God is going to be a, he's going to build a new temple. And the new temple is going to consist of living stones, men and women who've been saved by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. They're going to be joined and they're going to be fitted together. And then he's going to quote Haggai chapter two, verse six. To show that one day God will shake the whole world to its very foundations. He will shake the world so much that everything 
physical, everything temporal, everything visual will one day disappear. And Peter actually talks about this world will one day be consumed in fire. It will shake and it will disappear. And so the writer says, let us have grace. Part of what the writer is doing is he's talking about this. He gives the warning. He, he, he reminds us of what's going to happen. He gives the practical application. Since we receive and since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace in verse 28. What? What's he saying? He's saying that there's a world which can be shaken. And there's a world which can never be shaken. There's a reality that can be upset. And there is a reality that can never be upset. There's a grace that allows us to serve God with reverence and godly fear. We serve the Lord by grace. We serve the Lord Jesus by grace, not by laws, not by the old covenant, not by the old traditions, not by the old rituals. We're part of a kingdom that will never be shaken. It will never be removed because it's a kingdom whose builder and maker is God who has as its foundation the Lord. Jesus Christ. And so our God is a consuming fire. He'll burn away everything that's temporal. Only the eternal will remain. Look what it says in verse 25. Unbelief blocks the way of escape. It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. In this particular passage, he's once again going to contrast the old covenant and the new covenant. In what way? I'm going to suggest to you again that we start at the beginning of the text when it says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Pause for just a moment because that simple statement is powerful, remarkable, incredible. According to the Bible, God speaks. The Bible is a book filled with information about the nature and the character of God and the will of God. For the person that you may have grown up with or that you might have been who said, where are you, God? Why aren't you saying anything? Why don't you have something to say? The Bible says he has a lot to say. He speaks, that he's spoken in the past and he continues to speak in the present through the Lord Jesus Christ. God speaks, so the writer warns, see that you don't refuse him who speaks. When I think about refusing, imagine you go to someone, someone who's powerful, someone who's influential, someone who's wealthy. I think of that really crazy scene in The Godfather where Luca Brasi comes and he's rehearsing a speech because he wants to ask Don Corleone for a favor and Marlon Brando in that classic way goes, how can I refuse you on this, the day of my daughter's wedding? 
How can I refuse you? See that you don't refuse him. Think about what you're reading. Who is being referenced? He's talking about the Lord Jesus from the context in the chapter. Don't refuse the Lord Jesus. In what way? Remember what the writer of the Hebrews has said. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one who's spoken. Jesus is the one who's spoken for God. Jesus is the one whose sacrifice and blood cleanses you from sin. Jesus is the new covenant of mercy and grace. Jesus is, he's the lover of your soul and the cleanser of your heart. Don't refuse him. Don't close your heart. Don't shut your eyes. Don't shut your heart. Don't shut your eyes. Don't shut your ears. Don't close yourself off from the gospel and from Jesus. The passage is rich with treasure. When it says, see, in, in the very first word of the very first sentence, see that you do not refuse him. The word see is, is the Greek word blepte. The word to see in general is blepo. But here it means to keep a watchful eye. It's a word that you would use to describe a mother who has the baby not far from her. You understand that when you have a baby, you can't take your eyes off for a great deal of time. You have to pay careful attention. You have to have a watchful eye. You have to be alert. Those of you who know for, that have children, you know, wait a minute, where did my kid go? You know that you can't keep them from, from going that far away. So the idea being that God speaks and that Jesus speaks and the Holy Spirit speaks and see that you give God the right answer. And the word refused is also an interesting word in the original language. It's a really long Greek word that has a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. But the word refused meant to decline, to reject, to turn away, to deny, to disavow. It isn't, it isn't one of those words that you would say, could you please do this? And you say, no, thank you. It's a word that seems to mean, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it now. I may never do it ever. And so there's severe consequences. There's dire consequences for the person who holds on to his or her unbelief, to the person who holds on to their doubt, who holds on to the agnosticism and the skepticism and the atheism and the unbelief. It's, it's, it means for the person who says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, then why is the unbeliever so happy? Why does this person seem so content? Why is this person so happy and content to live her life, to live his life apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel? Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, almost 400 years ago, understood that question and its answer. He wrote, quote, the seeming peace of a sinner has, is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but the 
ignorance of his danger, unquote. The unbeliever, the make-believer, the skeptic, the atheist, the person who basically shuns God, shuns Christ, shuns the gospel in their own heart, makes up an excuse that in their case, God must make an exception. We know that God sends wicked people and evil people and horrible people to, to hell, but, but not me. The judgment awaits. The terror is more severe than the terror that was generated on Mount Sinai, and that's the contrast. He's going, do you remember how fearful the people were when they approached the mountain at Mount Sinai? And it was covered with smoke. There were voices and trumpets and rumblings and earthquakes and lightnings. So much so that the whole world itself seemed like it was on the verge of an apocalypse. Well, there's a far more terrifying event that's going to take place. The Bible says it's in the future. I suspect it's in the not too distant future. And so what are the reasons that the writer gives not to refuse Jesus, not to refuse the gospel, not to refuse salvation? Number one, because there's no escape for the closed-minded. Number two, there's no escape from a future judgment. That's in verses 26 and 27. And number three, there's no escape or that we can escape to an unshakable kingdom that's informed and preserved and maintained by grace. So the contrast is between Moses who spoke on the earth and Jesus who speaks from heaven. And that's what the writer means in verse 25 when he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. Who was the person who spoke on earth? Moses spoke on earth. But again, for those people who have actually read the Bible, they know that Abel had something to say, and Enoch had something to say, and Noah had something to say, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And as you walk through this incredible story called the Bible, God is speaking to a world that's distanced from him drawing them in, reminding them that he loves them and that he's trying to save them. And so the contrast between Moses who spoke on the earth and Jesus who speaks from heaven, and what's interesting is the expression in verse 25 is important when he says spoke, if him who spoke on earth. It's, it's again, a really long Greek word, kreme, tie. Zonta. But, but what makes that word such an interesting word, it doesn't just simply mean speech that comes out of your mouth. It's actually a word that means, I'm trying to think of a right word, a transmitter or a mouthpiece. The reason why I, I think that this is an important word because it's leaving the author with the impression that Moses is God's mouthpiece. Now it's one thing to speak for a particular person or through a particular person. You've all seen it in the world in which we live. 
an introduction is made. This is so-and-so. He or she is the spokesperson for the family. This person is a spokesperson. And so the writer is saying Moses is a spokesperson for God. But Jesus speaks from heaven. And the word that is used for speech by the voice of Jesus is an entirely different word. It's the Greek word lalonta. And why is this important? Because it means the real voice, the personal voice. The idea is that Moses is the mouthpiece of God, but Jesus is God's voice. There's no filter. There's no, there's no diminishing. There's, there's no cutting off. You might hear me on TV or you might hear me on the radio and, and you can hear me transmitting through your dial. But that's different from when I'm with you face to face in person. The writer is making that kind of a contrast. You've heard through a transmitter, but now you're hearing the very words of God coming from God. Moses was a mere man who spoke for God. Question. Moses is a mere man who speaks for God, but as a mere man speaking for God, did God expect the people to hear him and obey him? That's the right answer, yes. So the contrast is once again, if the expectation that God had was to hear Moses and obey Moses, how much more when Jesus speaks? When Jesus speaks, to the people that Jesus is speaking to. When you open up your Bible and you read in the New Testament and you read the words of Jesus and the principles of Jesus and the promises of Jesus, you read the words of Jesus. What is the fate of the person who hears the word of Jesus, God's own son? And Jesus makes the appeal I love you, come to me. Lay your burden down. Jesus says to the religious leaders in John 8, unless you believe that I am who I say I am, you're going to perish in your sin. In John 3.16, remember, he tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Come to me, he says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. What will happen to the person who rejects the invitation of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus? And that's part of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to impress upon these Hebrew Christians. You listen to Moses with the expectation that you would hear and obey how much more do you think it important to hear and obey what Jesus has to say? And by the way, no one in the ancient world, no one in the ancient world, no one in the ancient world would deliberately turn his or her back on the emperor. Can you imagine if you were standing before the emperor of Rome and you just went like this? Not gonna hear it. I'm not gonna listen to what you... What's gonna happen to that person? 
that is the right, that's, yeah, that's nonverbal communication, but it is exactly right. You don't turn your back on the emperor. We live in a world where we value freedom. So much so that we don't try to elevate other people above other people, but normally we will extend some courtesies. You may listen to the voice of a child with skepticism. But when a police officer says, put your hands up, do you afford him a little bit more courtesy by view of the fact that he has a badge and a gun? I would hope so. How much more if you turn your back on Jesus? What will happen if you turn your back on Jesus? There's no escape. And the reality is that the sacrifice of Jesus satisfies the problem of sin. And so the person who rejects Jesus have to bear the consequences of their own judgment and condemnation. In other words, the punishment for disobeying Jesus, the punishment for saying, I am not going to listen to the voice of God and I'm not going to listen to the voice of Jesus and I'm not going to listen to the words of the Bible. I'm going to listen to my own heart and I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. That means you have to bear the consequences of your own judgment. And this is why the Lord Jesus cried, wept, I'm talking real tears. I'm not talking he's angry because people aren't listening to him. In Matthew 17, 17, he says, What an unbelieving and perverse generation. How long will I be with you in Matthew 17, 17? Jesus told Thomas, Please, please, stop doubting. Have faith, John 20, 27. One of the tragic results of unbelief is the desire to live an abundant life without faith, without trust, without grace. Here's what you know. You know this. You, you know what I'm about to tell you. Do your unbelieving family and friends want to be happy. I think that they do, for the most part. Some of you might think, not by the way they act, and not by the way they speak, and not by the way they conduct themselves, they seem to be on a constant downward spiral of self-destruction. But if you corner them, and you beg them, and you say to them, tell me what it is that you really want. What is it that you want? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want a clean conscience? What is it that you want for yourself? What is it that you want for your family? What is it that you want for your children? What is it that you want for your future? I want to be happy. I want to be rich. I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with uncertainty. I don't want this. I don't want that. What, what is it that you want? I want peace, joy, and happiness. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. I don't want Jesus. Jesus is not what I want. So you want joy, peace, happiness, apart from God, apart from grace, apart from his mercy. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, 
Every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief, unquote. He's exactly right. You, you see, for the person who says, I have the right to believe whatever I want, you're exactly right. But you also have to bear the consequences of the choice that you've made. And so he talks about a great shaking and a judgment that, that awaits everything temporary in verses 26 and 27. That's why in verse 26 he says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised saying, quote, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven, unquote. Again, the context, the voice that was heard on Sinai caused the earth to shake. But there is another voice. This time, the voice speaks from heaven. The writer draws our attention to the danger of insulting God's person, but now to the danger of ignoring God's power. So for the person who says, I am not only going to insult God's person, I'm also going to completely disregard God's power. He quotes, the writer of Hebrew quotes Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. And those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Haggai, the quote's context is in the rebuilding of a future temple in Haggai chapter 2. The passage in Haggai reads this way, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it's a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. The very next verse reads, and I will shake the nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It's a picture of a future event where God shakes everything so profoundly and so fundamentally that nothing remains the same. And again, the contrast is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If this large and inanimate planet shakes at the voice of God, if this earth, if the earth itself, when God speaks, shifts on its axis, or you see an earthquake like what happened in the tsunami in the Indian Ocean or in South America or in Tibet and you, you hear, or in J Japan, you, you're, you're so aware of the earthquakes, the plates that move on the surface of the earth. And again, for the geologist or the philosophical materialist, they're going, this has nothing to do with God. You see there's magma underneath the earth and, and it's filled with heat and, and there's a plasticity on the surface of the earth and that coupled with water when the tectonic plates move the earth shakes that has nothing to do with God yeah keep telling yourself that you just keep telling yourself that that the God who created the heavens and the earth who ordered the beginning and the middle and, and the end that he's, he's unaware of what's going on on his own planet God shook the world at Mount Sinai. And so what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying is, God is going to shake the entire universe. If you can see it, 
if you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can smell it, if you can hear it, one day it's going to cease to exist. The chair that you're sitting on, the ground that you're walking on, the sky and the air that you breathe, everything, everything, everything is going to disappear. And in verse 27, the writer of Hebrews says, now this, yet once more. He actually cites the scripture, and now the writer of Hebrews is going to actually interpret the scripture and apply the scripture. He says, this indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's the application that he, he, he derives from the verse. What he's basically saying, just like Haggai spoke, that God is going to shake this world and everything in it and everyone in it. He's going to shake it. And the very fact that it can be shaken means that it can disappear. And the writer of Hebrews is basically making the point that this is going to prove that there are two essential ingredients that exist in reality, the things that can be shaken and the things that can never be shaken. And that's why he says in verse 27, yet once more, the physical, the tangible, the visual destroyed. And so when he says, so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What are the things that cannot be shaken? What is it that which will not be moved? What is that which will remain? If it's physical, tangible, visible, it's going to one day disappear. But if it's something that God has established, then it will not disappear. That's the point. The writer interprets the scripture yet once more to mean a complete and a final removal of everything in this universe. This is exactly what Peter thought and taught. One day, it's going to all disappear. And you probably even said it. It's all going to burn, you say. And you would be right. I read an article this week that said that the average American home, not, not, not the unaverage, but the average American home has 300,000 things. I'm not talking about people who are candidates for a hoarders episode. I'm just talking about regular people. You walk into your house and you have 100,000 or 200,000 different things. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. It's all going to burn. Why do we have so much stuff? I think it's because we love stuff. We love it. We love stuff. We love it. And we also know that no amount of stuff fills the void, fills the emptiness 
God will finally do away with, I, with what I call the fiction of philosophical materialism. The, philo, the fiction of philosophical materialism is that the things that you can see, touch, taste, smell is the only thing that's real. This is why our atheistic friends are wrong. This is why our atheistic friends who think, guess what, the only thing that's real is what you see and what you touch and what you interact with, they are so wrong. John Phillips writes, quote, in a coming day, all that has been created will be demolished. Man's defiance under grace makes this inevitable. The day is coming when this world will see such a demonstration of God's power as will leave nothing standing at all except what is founded on his grace, unquote. That's exactly right. We might be seeing the beginning of the shaking in our economy, the shaking in the environment, the shaking in the political and cultural circumstances. So what then is the appeal? God spoke at Sinai. Those who ignored his voice deliberately pushed towards the mountain when they were told, stand back. You need to respect God and you need to respect his holiness. And they said, no, we don't. And they approached the mountain. They were consumed. They lost their lives. God has spoken again, this time in his son and in his sovereign grace. He invites the sinner to receive cleansing, forgiveness, and salvation. And those who refuse will be summoned to a great white throne judgment. They'll stand before God and answer for their crimes. Imagine a person says, I'm not afraid to face God apart from Christ, apart from grace, and apart from the gospel. You should say to them, you should be. You should be. There's some things we need to have a healthy fear of. What are the things that can be shaken? Everything temporary, everything broken. What are the things that can't be shaken? Only the things that God has established. And so when the writer is saying to the Hebrews, what are the things that can be shaken? I believe that he really is talking about Judaism. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the sacrifices. He's talking about the rituals. He's talking about the customs. He's talking about the washings. He's talking about the observances. That they're all, they're all, they're all going to go away. And so, what are the things that can't be shaken? All of the things that stand firm by grace. Look what it says in verse 28. We're a part of an unshakable kingdom. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Think about what you just read. Therefore, in light of all of that, 
since we are receiving a kingdom. And what is the kingdom that we're receiving? It's the kingdom that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. Remember, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules, where God reigns, where God is in, in, in authority. We're receiving a kingdom which can't be shaken. And then he says, the reason it's established by God. The reason it's established by God in Jesus. The reason it's established by God in grace. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. That's the contrast between the law, the ritual, the religion, and grace. True believers possess a kingdom which cannot be shaken because they possess a savior who cannot be shaken because they possess a grace that cannot be destroyed by fire. And this is powerful. The unshakable kingdom is received by grace. We receive the unspeakable gift and favor of God through Jesus himself. Acts 15, 11, But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved even as they, Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When it says in Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption, that word redemption means to deliver, to deliver by paying a price. It means to provide a delivery through means of a price and Jesus has, been, has paid the price. We have been purchased out of the marketplace of sin by Jesus himself. Paul wrote, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men in Titus chapter 2 verse 11. This, for the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What is the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men? It's the person of Jesus. Jesus is born. He lives. He dies. He comes back to, to life. This information is available to everyone. So that we can serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. We haven't been bought by Jesus to continue to live our lives for ourselves, apart from holiness, apart from peace, or to continue in sin. The word reverence means caution, careful, discernment, discretion, circumspection. Circumspection is a word that we has completely fallen out of favor. But circumspection means a willingness to look carefully at the way I'm walking and the direction that I'm going. It's what you say whenever you say to a child, it's dark, watch where you're going. And that's what that means. The phrase godly fear means apprehensive. In this particular instance, I think it means apprehensive because of the danger that's just right around the corner. The events of the world are going to unfold quickly, dramatically. 
But the Bible says we're justified by grace, Romans 3.24. We stand in grace, Romans 5.2. We're elected by grace, a remnant according to the election of grace, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. We're strengthened by grace. Remember Paul pleading with God to remove the thorn that was in him. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient. We sang it. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me. It's sufficient. My strength is made whole or complete. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We work. We even work by grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. I labored, yet not I, but it was the grace of God inside of me. Paul basically points to the fact that, guess what? I did what Jesus told me to do. Jesus said that I would be a witness to the Gentiles, and I I was. Jesus asked me to speak to kings, and I did. Jesus asked me to go places where no one has ever gone before, and that's exactly what I did, and I did it by grace. He didn't say, I did it because I'm a great super apostle who has incredible gifts and callings. No, he says he was strengthened by grace. Saving grace, sufficient grace, stimulating grace, sacrificing grace, supplying grace. In, first, in John chapter 1, verse 16, John the apostle writes, of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Grace is wonderful. Grace is powerful. And grace can't burn. So if you've ever wondered, how will I escape judgment and how will I escape a fire? Be filled with grace. Because every gracious part of you will survive. Everything about you that's informed by grace Filled with grace, defined by grace, executed by grace. I want you to think about this just for a moment. You cannot preserve what God has destined to burn. And you cannot burn what God has destined to preserve. You cannot preserve what God has declared will not last. And you cannot destroy what God has declared will last. Think about that for a moment when you read verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? For our God is a consuming fire. Why is he saying that? Every observant Jew would have known that he just quoted Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Moses wrote, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Does that bother you? Does that disturb you? You know, it did Oprah Winfrey. She was absolutely horrified. She said she ceased being a Christian the moment that she discovered that the God of the Bible is a jealous God. Because she thought that the jealousy of God was like the jealousy of human beings. Selfish. Wicked. 
uninformed by grace and mercy and love. But God has a perfect jealousy, a wholesome jealousy, a singular jealousy that causes him to make sure that everything, 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 everything that's not good for you will burn away. Again, the verse before is Deuteronomy 4.23, which reads this way. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The reason why God is a consuming fire is everything weird, everything wicked, everything wrong, everything that's not wholesome, everything that's not healthy, everything that's not true will disappear. And so the law given at Sinai prescribed dreadful judgments and punishments. But grace, grace and mercy extends reward. It's interesting to me, remember in earlier in chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, it says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted, insulted the spirit of grace. Who is the spirit of grace? This is one of the wonderful names of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because he's holy. He's called, the ho he's called the Spirit of truth. And he's also called the Spirit of grace. I love what Matthew Henry writes about grace. He says, grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. God is a consuming fire. First to everyone who will who refuses to listen to him and to those who cling to partial obedience and to those who claim complete obedience. God remains a consuming fire to everyone who disobeys, everyone who imperfectly obeys, and to everyone who obeys. What does all of that mean? No wonder in verse 28, the writer says, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? You want law, rules, rituals? The writer of Hebrews, who I guarantee you is a Hebrew, says, let us have grace. But what about those people who would attack grace, pervert grace, distort grace, what about those who are bewitched by the law, like it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? What about the people who say, look, I, I like grace, but I like law better because I like to know what I'm supposed to do. W.E. Best put it this way, quote, the sinner, apart from grace, is unable to be willing and unwilling to be able Grace is what gives you the ability to say, I don't want anything else other than Jesus. I don't want anything else other than his love. I don't want anything other than to count on his sacrifice. Whatever it means, it must mean that God gives us grace. 
the writer of Hebrews says, let us have grace. Do you know what that means? It means no one is safe in their own strength. No one is safe with their own resources, their own strength. Spurgeon preached it this way. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth hearing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon told his congregation, Ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge, yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can I can hear their trampings now as they tra traverse the great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by the thousands. They come by the myriads. Ere since the day when Christ first entered into his glory, they come and yet never a stone has sprung from that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arches never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them trusting the same support I will bear me over the bridge that has borne them do you understand what he's saying he's he's saying I want you to imagine that you're going from death to life you're going from darkness to light and you're crossing a bridge and the bridge has a name on it and the bridge is called grace and I want you to imagine that you're putting your foot on the bridge called grace, but you are weighted down with the weight of your sin because you're an awful person, a horrible sinner who's done every conceivable thing wrong. And you don't necessarily believe that the bridge of grace will be able to sustain the weight of your sin. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, I crossed over it and it held. Paul crossed over it and it held. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John crossed over it and it held. Every single person in every single generation has crossed over it and it held. And so here's the idea. The idea is that you can place your foot on this bridge called grace and you might do it with fear and trepidation. Then you discover something that his grace will hold you. It will sustain you. It will bear the weight and it will take you to the place where you need to be. Jesus forever. That's what Spurgeon is saying. He invited his congregation to cross the bridge of grace knowing that it would sustain them. It's a bridge that can't be shaken. It will never be moved. And it will never disappear. The Bible's testimony, if it can be shaken, it will be shaken. If it can't be shaken, it will remain. What will remain? Jesus. Jesus in you by grace.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person who's listening to me, scared to death to cross over the bridge of grace, afraid to bear the full weight of their sin on that bridge, wondering if grace will crumble under the enormous wickedness and weight of a life lived in rebellion. But Lord, we have the testimony of all the saints in every age that the bridge will remain secure, sound, capable of bearing our weight so that we can cross safely into the arms of Jesus, into the fellowship of the saints, into the comfort of a world that will never, ever disappear. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.